You're listening to The Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next half an hour or so we're going to be talking about all things food and drink and as usual I'm joined by my handsome, young, <laughs> rusting, <laughs> clever fellow presenter Ollie Lloyd. Founder Hi. of Great British Chefs. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I thought I'd be nice to you today. That's really nice. Yeah, because I'm really horrible to you, so I thought, I oh, know, I'll be nice to you today. We were having some dad jokes before we sort of got on, got on air just then, so, you know. <laughs> yes, It obviously indeed. put you in the mood. Yeah, yeah, and I'm going to be really nice to you today. Great, love it. You're going to be so disarming. We've got two lovely guests um, in the studio. Uh, my first is Andrew Kojima, who everybody just calls Kodge. That's right, Kodge. Kodge. Ever since school. And you're going to talk to us about Japanese food later. Um, and Fred Thornycroft, uh, Fruits of the Forage. Have you come down from Macclesfield today? No, I've had a little bit of time down south. Ah, so. there we are. It was actually a Glastonbury Festival. Ah, ah, we were talking about that last week, actually. Was it, was it a good Glastonbury? It was very, it was bacon. And yeah, I had a lovely good. time, yeah. yeah quite the experience. Yeah. So your first Glastonbury? It was my first time. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're going to talk um, to uh, Codge first, um, but you've brought some cordial with you. Can we can we have a little slurp of that first? Well, the, uh, the, 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 the podcast I did listen to was the uh, pressing... The elderflower. Oh, the Wow, yes, that just yeah. went everywhere. Right. Have you been that shaking was... that up? What is that? Is that, that sparkling like, water? That was, yeah, wow, that just that's just gone everywhere. We're somewhere all a bit warm. <laughs> oh, it's we fine, we'll just, car- we'll just carry on. Luckily, <laughs> it's, a, me. it's a sunny day. But um, yeah. yeah, well, that was running, running here late. Yes, know, well done. <laughs> Forager style. That absolutely went everywhere. I don't need the elderflat corner, I'm already wearing it. Yeah. I'm glad you were next to Fred. I was. Um, I managed to escape that. I'm sorry Dan, about Dan that. You get some of that. Oh, I got some of that yeah. Yeah, it's um, rather cool. Oh well. Mind. You were saying that the air conditioning was really fine yes. in the studio today. Uh, well, so, you know. well, that's cooled us all down. Yeah. So um, this is your elderflower cordial. Are these from elderflowers that you've foraged? Yes, they are. So we make a nice combination. It's elderflower, rhubarb, and grapefruit Ooh. cordial. Rhubarb and grapefruit. So we. I know you're wearing it. Would you like to actually taste some? Thank you. What's special about what we do is we always use them fresh and infuse it in all the fruit juice mm. and everything else. You know, it's picking all the right flowers, infusing them in in sort of mm. everything, uh, everything that's in there. So we pack it full of fruit juice, lemon juice, apple juice, grapefruit and rhubarb. And then the fruit juice is a lovely balance of flavours. And then the fruit juice also acidifies the cordial. So we don't use citric acid, which is one of our, the things that we try and, you know, it's just one preservative to avoid. We find it has a bit of a harsh flavour. Mm. Um, and then because we... It's a bit we, overpowering, isn't it? it, it and yeah. you, when you really look into it, a lot of the kind of zingy flavour that you get from a lot of cordials or soft drinks is, a, you know, food scientists actually advise you to use it because it's got a zingy flavour. But it overpowers something like elderflower, of course. So uh, we pack in so much fruit juice, we don't tend to. We get the right acidity just through fruit juice. Oh, that's jolly nice. It tastes a lot better than it does as a sort of as something to wear. I mean, <laughs> as a as perfume, a, as, as, a, as, as, as a shirt, it's much Try it less as a impressive. Cocktail, yeah. I tend to wear it a lot as a cocktail. <laughs> well, we're going to come on to you later, Fred. Um, but we're going to we're going to sip this delightful cordial as we go along and dry off and dry off. Um, so, um, 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 Codge, So, coming to you, I'd like to talk about Japanese food. Um, uh, essentially, when Ollie does his uh, annual sort of uh, research uh, Japanese food is definitely growing 
in popularity, isn't it, Ollie? But people just don't seem confident enough to cook it at home I, or make it at home. Yeah, it's a funny one because actually, I think if you look at Japanese food in the UK, there are some incredibly expensive restaurants do mm. Japanese food. Not many, but very, very, very expensive. There is a lot of what I call mass market Japanese food in terms of the, sort of the chain restaurants that I would say sell, I would say, pretty average um, sushi. And then there's a little bit done at home, but I think only 5% of the UK cook Japanese food at home. If you compare that with, say, Indian or Chinese, which is it's off the charts. Meat, isn't it? yeah. And I think what's really interesting is I think that what people generally find is they haven't found a route in to cooking Japanese food at home. And what I often say is that if you want to make a cuisine engaging to the UK population, you need to find a dish. Mm. You take Moroccan cuisine, there's the tagine. People kind of get it, they cook it, they've done it. You know, and I think that what's strug what's difficult with Japanese food is while actually sushi isn't as difficult as you think it might be to make at home, people are kind of off problem mm. with that. Well, um, Cod, you're you're half Japanese and half British, and in 2012 you were a finalist on BBC One's Master Chef, uh, which is why your face is very familiar to me. Um, and 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 in a way, you use that as a springboard out of a career in finance and in, into a sort of new life in food. And you now sort of work as a chef, as a food writer, as a cookery teacher, but you do specialise in, in, in Japanese cuisine. And I think you opened your first restaurant in March 2017, 2017 yes, yeah. um, in Cheltenham. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so you you have this unique no-sushi casual dining Japanese restaurant in Cheltenham. So, so why no-sushi? You've got a real thing about it, haven't you, really? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the 80s when I was growing up. And, you know, back then, every Japanese restaurant was expensive. And obviously that's changed in the, well, since about 2000. You know, if you think Yo Sushi came around in the late 90s, Wagamama's, like, similar sort of time. And they, they've they taken a big space in the mid-market, or, um, or, you know, more affordable Japanese stuff. But the Japan as a country enjoyed having this export of sushi, the, you know, the poster boy of their cuisine, and using it as something that was photogenic and uh, expensive because of the ingredients often, um, and premium, basically, um, that's that has changed. And w- when I was growing up, you know, it was difficult to get good fresh fish. Mm. You could get you could get frozen and pre-cut, but only like very um, specialist Japanese stores. I think there were only two in London when I was growing up. Mm. So we so tend- Japan Centre. <clears throat> Yeah, Japan Centre. There was one up in on Baker Street opposite Collindale. Collindale, yeah, that's yeah. closed now. Is it? Um, oh, I don't know. But of course, you know, even since that's closed, you can now get it all online. Yeah. So it's, it's a different, it's a different world compared to when I grew up. So, coach, what what is sushi though? What what does it mean? What sushi means? What is it? All it means is uh, sour rice, right. vinegar rice, because it's. So it's is, not it, is, bit, it the it's ri- not... is it the 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 sort of you know the rice that's sort of little bit of a sort of thumb oblong thing with a, with a, a slice of fish on top? Is that is that, that's... Is that what you describe as sushi or other people or that... is it the sort of rolls that are stuffed with you know rice with all sorts of They're things inside? They're both types of sushi. They're, they've got okay. different. So uh, the, the ones you're referring to with the it's called the netter on top. Yeah. That's, that's nigiri sushi. Yeah. Um, and then you've got maki sushi, which is the rolled one. The rolled with the um, black seaweed on the outside. Tet maki sushi, which is the one that rolled by hand, because yeah. tet means hand. 
as in karate. So it's all of those things <clears throat> that have got that sort of rice content. Yes. It is what is described as sushi. Yeah. So if you're going to Tesco's, that's the stuff they do for lunch or waitrose yeah. or something. Yeah. That, is, that is what yeah. you would describe as sushi. Yes. And going back to your original question, why did I open a no sushi mm. restaurant? Well, I grew up in a in a time when we couldn't particularly get good fish. So we you know, sushi wasn't a thing we made a lot at home. So my dish that you refer to, the thing that we always we always did, you know, probably once a week, was pork tonkatsu. Uh, which is, you know, it's, I mean, it's it's not even that Japanese, to be honest. Let's face it, it's a schnitzel. Um, but it comes with a Japanese sauce. You serve it with rice, some shredded cabbage, you know, in a Japanese way, the way they do it over in Japan now. But it's, you know, it's comfort food. It's, you know, sausage and mash and, and katsu, for, the, for the Japanese. katsu is sort of breaded. Uh, katsu, yeah, katsu is, katsu is a funny little word. It yeah. means, it's the, the Japanese translation of cutlet. Ah. But of course, yeah. Japanese can't really say cutlet. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not good with my eyes. So they say katsuret. And katsuretsu became abbreviated to katsu. And if we talk about some of the other traditional cuisines of Japan, so, so we, a lot of it is based on rice uh, for, for very obvious reasons. Um, miso soup, is that actually Japanese? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. The, the, if you think about the Japanese, they, they were a Buddhist, and they still are a Buddhist country, so they, they didn't eat a lot of meat before the, um, the 18, about 1860. So their, their diet was rice and beans, soybeans specifically, um, and so they had to find ways of eating beans. And you couldn't just eat them fresh, you had to preserve them. So miso developed as a way of preserving soybeans by combining them with a cereal and and salt and and making miso paste, which then you just dilute. And, uh, you know, the most basic miso soup would be miso paste and water, but obviously... I have to say, it is one of my favourite ingredients, miso. You know, I've started using it more and more. I love and miso soup. I mean, you have to get a really good one, but I just think it's gorgeous. But it's just using it as the paste. I mean, I did an aubergine mm. dish the other day where, you know, the aubergine was covered in a miso-type marinade and then barbecued and then stuff sprinkled on top. And it was just, it's just so tasty. Other dishes, um, we've got uh, pickled. Mm-hmm. Pickled vegetables, yeah. again, pickling quite quite common. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think pick, pickling is is common in all cultures. Yeah, um, but um, just preserving food. Isn't yeah, it, preserving really? foods exactly, preserving foods. And the Japanese, I think that's one of the the shames for me that vegetables in Japan get don't get a lot of because of sushi is so dominant over here in the UK and you know elsewhere in America mm. and um, vegetables are incredibly important and they the, the Japanese revere the seasons as they change and bring, seeing all these vegetables arrive so you know you, you need to preserve them and that's sushi was exactly the same it was a way of preserving fish when the for when the seas went rough and yep. they couldn't fish anymore yeah but seafood is very very common isn't it I don't associate Japanese cooking much with meat but but is that just my version of sushi or is, is that is that true well, that part part of that is because the the meat culture has only been around for 150 years, um, if you think about it, um, and that was due to you know the the, the country opening up to trade a lot more. But you know, if you think about wagyu beef, they now produce some of the finest Huge, beef yeah. in the world, yeah. um, and pork is incre- you know pork is probably the most popular meat, just like in in China, it's, yeah. it's probably eaten a lot more, and of course chicken as well. One of my favourites um, is sashimi. Yeah, I really adore raw fish but but it has to be such amazing quality because you can't get away with anything unless it is can you um it's again is sashimi um traditional or is that just a, a sort of you know anglicization or bastardization no 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 absolutely. sashimi is, is is fully japanese um sashimi obviously is the one that you say without the rice um mm-hmm. is that was that why you like it do you prefer just to... i don't like rice i just i just adore sashimi i right. just think it's a, an, the best way to serve fish because you mm. just if you get great fish, it just tastes incredible. What what I find amazing is that, you know, we, we, we live in the UK here, surrounded by fresh fish, 
So many countries. We are the big, do. biggest meat eaters in the world, almost, and we, we're, we're an island. It's hilarious. It's just, and, and but no, no other island like uh, serves fish like even like if, even if you go to like Central America, they they still pickle it in limes or you know up in Scandinavia they'll cure it. No one serves it purely raw like mm. Japanese. And isn't, isn't that understand. bizarre? I know. I don't understand why. I mean, we eat oysters. I mean, tuna's amazing yep. raw. Do. Um, and I always find that very strange because some people say oh, I don't like sushi, and then I see them eating, eating oysters, smoked salmon, and oysters. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, well, that's it's not, raw. It's not that far. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there the, there is this sort of um, the noodles. So we've got you know soba noodles, udon noodles. Again, is that actually traditional? That the, the noodles or is that recent? Yeah, I mean, they obviously they, they go back. A lot of them go back to China. Ramen, you know, the, the most popular Japanese uh, noodle in London at the moment is is fully Chinese. It's only been in Japan really since Chinatowns emerged in the ports in the 1920s um, after the war. Um, and now it's, you know, it's, it's, everyone sees it as a Japanese dish, but that came from China. A, lo- a lot of stuff came from China and spread across Asia. Um, mm. it, you know, even China's got its own versions of miso. But one of my Sue favorites. always teases me about the, the number of different bits of kit I have in my home. And one of the things I bought, I think last year, was a, a Japanese um, grill so one of the ones that's made out of concrete. It's a you know, the, 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 dream. The, the middle, the, you know, the, the, about this sort of size where you put the two, very small amounts of charcoal in <clears> and you can just cook things very, very precisely at, you know... How often have you used that one? Not enough. I was just thinking as, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, siakatori. Um, mm. It's just, it's so... I mean, what's amazing though is that you there is a... The thing I love about Japanese food is there's an attention to detail and appreciation of produce that's almost just unheard of I think within other cuisines in the sense that the way they handle just the little things and such uh, yeah the care right word. before we go on to that because it's almost an art that uh, my favourite I'm afraid to say I'm a bit of sucker for this um, is a sort of tempura it's just it's just fried food. I just love it. Yeah, but it's the um, best fried food in the world. Vegetables, mm. though, vegetable tempura yeah. is, is incredible. Again, is that traditional or is that is that just? Well, I mean, again, all cuisines you mean have traditional. some type yeah. of fried mm, we got food. Fish, fish and chips, but um, yeah, I wouldn't say <laughs> maybe. But uh, no, I mean, tempura came again with uh, generally with the Portuguese, and you know, the Portuguese were going around like bees pollinating the world with ideas and. Um, they bought tempura, the art, you know, the art of deep frying bhajis and things like that from India, and that arrived in Japan. And you know, the, the thing that the Japanese have always been good at, whether it's food or cars or anything else, they've been good at taking something and, you know, making it their own and, and perfecting it. And tempura, you know, the beautiful thing again, going back to vegetables, they it's if they do it right, they're steamed inside there, so you, do, you keep the mm. flavour. Mm. And have you ever seen the film Gyro Dreams of Sushi? I have, yeah. Okay, you haven't, have you, Ollie? I haven't actually. No, you, not around to now, watching it. I need, just, I need to see it. As you were describing this about attention to detail, um, obviously, is Gyro still alive? I think he's dead he now. Oh, he is alive. He's alive, yeah. Um, uh, uh, he must be in his 90s now, he, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, uh, the attention to detail and what he does in his, his restaurant is astounding. Do, do you want to just describe? Um, uh, can you remember it, Kaj? Yeah, I, I remember it really well because uh, it's, it's got a special place in my heart because my dad died the week I saw that. Oh, and um, and my dad, you know, my dad was was sick while we were filming Master Chef, and I always worry that you never see it. And just as it came out, it got released. And it'd been made a couple of years before 2012. It got, it got released in the UK, and I, I wanted him to come watch it with me. And it's it, a documentary, isn't it? Yeah, it's a documentary. So it's got a special place in my heart. Yes, I mean that that it shows, like Ollie, you were saying, 
the attention to detail, but the simplicity. I mean, there's there's very few complicated techniques in producing sushi. You've got to cook some rice well. You've got to cut some, choose and cut some fish well. And that's why it's so strange that people don't cook Japanese because actually, when you look at it, it's all the same skills that we have in any kitchen, cutting, buying good ingredients. But you see, I, rice has always been something that scares people. It's to this day, it's something that people get wrong cooking rice. And yeah. therefore, I think it's, you know, I'm, you know, I've done a lot of work with people like Tilda over the years. And even just basic, you know, basmati rice, they kind of are concerned about how to cook it well. And I just think it's, the rice, I think, stands as a barrier. And I don't think they found another dish that... You see, see, this film is extraordinary because because what it shows. I mean, I think, is there only eight seats or something in his yeah. restaurant? I can't remember. It's tiny. In the bottom of a tiny eight turns, subway station, and it's in the middle yeah. of nowhere. And what people queue up for, Don't like you wouldn't believe. And it's had Michelin stars coming out of his ears or whatever. Yeah, I can't Michelin remember. stars, I think. Um, and and he will go and find the. I mean, there was a whole section on the, in the film about finding a rice supplier that was good mm. enough that he was happy with. I mean. The sourcing of what he did was extraordinary. extraordinary. And then there was one particular scene that I remember, this poor guy sitting in a... I think it might have been his son, who was who was really struggling to live up to these extraordinary ideals. And he was just sitting in a corridor on a chair, massaging an octopus for <laughs> hours and hours and hours on end because there's no way he's going to serve octopus because you have to... You know, so I've done manipulate it and, and get it going. And then there was another another chef there who'd cooked. What's the egg dish? Uh, 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 it's almost like a sort of omelet. Oh, the like omelet, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, amazing. This guy had Tamago. cooked them for three months or something, mm. and every single one had been rejected. It's just wasn't good enough. <laughs> been doing it for months, and then one day he did it, and it was okay. Well, he just cried his eyes out, didn't he? <laughs> It's just, it's just amazing. This, but I think, but that's what I think is so extraordinary about Japanese food. But I, but I, but I think that also that attention to also again puts people off. Actually, from cooking it from home perspective, well, obviously that's because, an extreme. No, of course uh, it but, is. But, but but it's much more associated with that style of cooking. Um, it's the, the way they source stuff it's was extraordinary. I mean, for me, Sukiji Fish Market is one of the greatest places on earth. I used when I used to work out in Asia for Unilever. I used to often go at sort of five, six in the morning. Where's this Tokyo? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have your early morning beer, you know, with sushi at seven a.m. and it's just, it's just nothing better. But Japan has more three-star Michelin yeah. restaurants than any other city in the world. Yeah. Now, one might argue that isn't necessarily a measure, but but food is very very important, isn't it, in Japan? It's. I mean, I've I've never had a bad meal in Japan. I, I mean, regardless of the Michelin stars, it has more good restaurants than any other country I've ever been to, apart from maybe Italy. Um, so do you think do you think it's part of the national psyche that that it's about honour and doing things right, and it's so important in terms of status that you get it right? Is, is that part of the culture? Yeah, they yeah they've got a very it's ingrained whatever whatever industry you're in, whether it's food or making cars, they've got a constant desire to improve and be the best. Um, in terms of eating out, I mean. The, the other the other thing that they're good at is specialising. I mean, if you go to any Japanese restaurant, including my own, we'll do everything from ekonomiyakis to fried chicken, because we as British people want want that selection. There, you get. I mean, I, one of the best restaurants I went to was not Mission Stars, but just a bowl of rice, some grilled eel, and a sticky t- sticky soy sauce. He did that every day for God knows how many years, 30, 40 years. Now, for me as a chef, I'd get a bit bored of that. Um, and I think many chefs would, but he took great pleasure in perfecting it and doing it 
just right every day. So that helps the consistency, the, the, consistency, mm. the specialism, mm. narrowness of focus. Fred, do you do you eat Japanese food? Do you do you like Japanese food? Or is it has not really hit you? Has it gone up to mm. Macclesfield yet? Yeah, we're not. We're not. <laughs> there's not a great number. So, I used to, I I used to live in Cheshire. I'm allowed to say that. There are, there are, I've lived in Cheshire for 20 years. I'm allowed to say it. There are now Japanese restaurants all over the world. There's a bit more happening around Manchester now, but I think they say street foods more. But no, you know, we haven't got a, a huge range in the northwest. I don't think there's a lot of you know interesting stuff going on. But well, some good Chinese it's not cuisine as actually well around served Manchester. as London. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so just uh, just to sort of finish off, uh, your restaurant, um, it's um, called, what's it called? Codge. Down here, Codge. It's called yeah. Codge, Codge, it's your name. Um, and it's in Cheltenham. Uh, just tell us some of the things you've got on the menu and um, well, yeah, we've, your favourites. We've always, we try and follow uh, the kind of um, casual grazing idea. Japanese people, I always thought my dad was a slow eater. Um, but it turns out now that I've got to know Japanese people, that's just the way they eat. We, we teased him all, all the time. But they, you know, we see it from the Japanese com- people in, coming into our restaurant. They just sit there grazing, grazing. Yeah, we, and you, you want to clear the table, and they no, 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 leave that. When I mean, it's gone cold, I don't care. I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm still picking at it. Yeah. Um, so we we give them that experience, and we start off with what they call otsumami, which is basically beer snacks. So the, the classic one is edamame beans covered in salt. Another favourite of mine. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know it's good. You know, they've by the time you've had that, you need another beer. It's good for beer sales. Like crisps in the pub, really. Um, we do. We we also do buns with the steamed buns. Uh, I did have one of them just just yesterday. Yeah. Now you mention it, so here it was in London. Yeah, on a nice roof in Stratford. Again, those aren't aren't particularly authentically or traditionally Japanese, but um, they came. They were on the menu by accident. We we opened with a very small menu of like three uh, yakitori and other kushiyaki skewers, and about six dishes. And I had a party to open the open the restaurant and. It was a standing party and all these dishes were not... Apart from the skewers, there wasn't sort of standing party food. So I bought the buns to stuff, you know, whatever we were cooking into the buns and then you try them. And everyone loved the buns, they they stayed. So they're, they're on the menu. And the other, um, so the one that the, the one that everyone seems to love is the soft-shell tempura crab bun. Oh, I love that. See, that's one of soft my favourites as well. Mm. I actually had that just the other day as well. But yeah. It was in a Thai restaurant. So you eat oh, loads of this stuff, Fred. Sorry no, to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, do, we just did a little bit of... Uh, fennel pickled in sushi vinegar and uh, make a yuzu mayonnaise and a little bit of mm. togarashi which is Japanese sort of um, seven spice um, uh, just sprinkled over the top and then the thing that's always been on the menu is fried chicken it's incredibly popular I bought some of that togarashi the other day a yeah. recipe called for it I had to go on Amazon in order to get it but it's, it's really delicious mm. it's because it's got um, what's in it well it's got it's got seaweed it's got yeah. sesame which is obviously yeah. universal it's also got bits of mandarin which gives it a lovely fruitiness mm. and then it's the other thing that makes it different apart from the it's a Japanese chilli but they they put um, sancho pepper in which is not a pepper but it's it's actually the berry of a prickly ash and it's very citrusy if you get if you get a love chance stuff. to it's really, wow. get a tin mm. of sancho pepper open it it's just incredible and that that really makes yeah, it yeah these aren't these aren't normal spices are they <laughs> They're not, but they. We've got them in our. We we make our own gin for the restaurant, and we put Sancho in the gin, and it's it's spectacular. Really <sighs> so that's the, that's should, the Japanese spice. Yes, yeah, yeah. get some Sancho incredible. pepper and put it with. Um, Going to try what, that. Going to yeah. try that. You've heard it. You heard it here first. The leagues ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first. So, so I I think um, really really important to Japanese uh, cuisine is the 
you know, the raw ingredients. You're, not, you're never going to make something good unless you've got incredible ingredients. Um, and Fred, you, you absolutely love foraging. You love yeah. foraging, and you, I mean this this um, um, cordial we've had is is gorgeous. Um, but part of it is you, you you just can't help yourself, can you? Damsons, yeah, you've you've got you've got the idea already, haven't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's essentially so, so, how it started. How did that start? I couldn't help myself. Just as a child, you just loved going out. Um, yeah, I mean it did start quite early. You sort of got introduced to gardening, and um, we grew some chilies at eighteen, and then I made some chili jam to go travelling. And then my brother did the same thing when he was uh, sort of leaving uni and he made, he so he lays claim to the first forage preserves in our family. And then, yeah, we, I, I came out of university and wasn't particularly enjoying searching for jobs. And uh, and then we just, we had this, we had this little ladies evening that my mum's did. So I just sort of went to make some jams and me and my brother were doing it together. He went on holiday to Italy and I just got really carried away at that point. And just like you say, but we, we were um, in university making you know it all goes back to getting pissed is uh, <laughs> so basically you know university... I know what should we do tonight I know let's uh, yeah, yeah university times yeah looking yeah. for interesting things to to brew up so we we, we made cider and Sue <laughs> just started searching for old orchards for making for making cider there was there's just masses around Cheshire and then yeah, so, I mean, we did have some interesting basic kind of herbs in university, things like nettle beer, and then we read some of these old hippie books, one called Sacred Herbal and Healing Beers, which had more interesting herbs which you put in beers, which I'm always intrigued to use. They had these sort of <laughs> old beers called groots, where they, before they used hops, they would have used a wide range of different herbs, which may have had more interesting effects to these beers, but... Mm. Uh, we don't put that in our jam yet, but we, yeah, so... So you thought, I'm, I'm, I'm not really inspired by hunting for a normal job like other people. Surely I can make a living out of bumming around doing foraging and, and making jams and beers and experimenting. That sums it up really nicely. Me and my brother were sort of grew up as good mates and we just knocked around the countryside and we enjoyed making stuff and we mm. started out just after university, spent the summer picking blackberries, picking slows, filling a freezer full of plums. Got fired by a, from a job, which wasn't a particular job I wanted to do, I don't think. It was just taking a job for a job and then, uh, I, then I didn't have yeah. a job. <laughs> yeah. And I'd... Uh, so I Need certainly had my, my father encouraging me to write more CVs, but I, I had this freezer full of fruit and um, I was sort of determined to, like you said, I'd saw other people doing things similar, but I thought, you know, there's so much out there. I can, you know, I can do a better job than this. Now, I've, I've, I've been a great fan of your slow Seville marmalade for mm. a while. I think I normally We've already nick converted it. You, yeah, I, I normally steal it when I go to Speciality Fine Food Fair. I think, and others. You oh, also right. entered the Fine Food Award, the Future Food Awards, and sent us a load, which I was very grateful for. So that was good. Um, now, uh, Ollie has. I never have not tried it. So could Ollie please yeah, taste your slow? Without any um, further ado, I tell you what, marmalade. As, as well. it is it doesn't fabulous. explode, does it? Can we just check this in advance? No, we don't want I was to, um, covered by the last thing you. Yeah. Opened. Well, yeah. all of our best products do explode, but what we've got is a slow Seville marmalade. So oh, going to beer, we'd, we'd be we gave it. A, by the yeah, yeah. We've got three gold stars from the Great Taste Awards. See what I mean? I gave it a romantic uh, description, which uh, sort of pulls on the the historic origins of the fruits, which is. Uh, Slows are like the well. Slows are the wild ancestor of plums, along with cherry plums, 
which funnily enough, I was just at London Wetlands uh, yesterday and I came back with a rucksack full of cherry plums. The, the fruits of London are ripening, but basically... Sloes are the wild ancestor of plums. They fruit very late, and cherry plums are the other wild ancestor, and they fruit very early. They're the two sort of wild, true wild stone fruit. I'll eat some of that. They are good, sir. And um, so, yeah, so sloes are a wild ancestor, and then Seville oranges were in Europe 600 years before sweet oranges because they are the true wild ancestor of oranges. Mm. So these. I I, I like their slightly bitter edge, Seville oranges. They're all wild, true wild fruits. We thought they're a natural combination. Do you like that, Ollie? I, no, you don't like it. I love it. It's was, really um, good. What isn't I was it? thinking about was I'll just have before that. before great. we went on air, we were discussing Thank one you. of my favourite cocktails I've ever had, which was marmalade mixed with gin and ice and mixed up in a shaker. Mm. And um, I've put this in gin. Yeah, yeah, it must <laughs> have be great. You? I'm going to put this in gin. Yeah, I mean, we're I'm I'm uh, we're not well. You know, why not? We're on we're on air. Why not better place to reveal it? But we haven't told many people that we're going into gin. The uh, the um, our application is um, a bit extra. Yeah, so I'm having mm. more of that. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, so we <laughs> want to get into alcohol, getting into gin, and uh, using. So essentially, we we work very hard, and we you know we pack so much fruit into our jams, and we have been a little bit. The the grass is greener, and you know, we've seen a lot of people with with uh, you know perhaps indicating they use a lot of wild things in their gins and sometimes you don't see as much evidence of it but we we have a you know a lot of expertise and we sell products with a lot of work which tend to go for 3 for 10 pounds or 4 pound a jar mm. and we're thinking maybe these 40 pound bottles of gin are a potentially Easy a, bit. a better way of using your your yes hard your work, hard, work this, hard work this jam mm. company but yeah you know it's more it's, it's nice isn't it's, it and it's really how, how we started was making booze and for and, me, it's got a, a really nice... It's a bit like the cordial we just had. It's got a really nice, you know, combination of flavours mm. there. You can taste marmalade, but you can mm. taste the... There's know. also a really nice texture to it. You get yeah. you get some of the skins and you get some of the pieces mm. and that's just, you know, it mm. feels it feels feels very homemade. Whereas lots of things say the word homemade on it, mm. but they just, you know... Oh, we're trying not to fall on the sword with our homemade principles because we are very devoted to making it properly. Um, so where do you make this in the moment? So we set these all naturally without pectin, which creates a lot of a lot of work, but they make extremely authentic products. But we're also thinking that maybe we're falling on the sword there because we want, we have quite a, a high aspirations to supply larger retailers. And, you know, with the whole food industry, it's all about consistency. And when you add things like pectin, it makes your product consistent, whereas we rely on the natural pectin, which, you know, it's essentially just a... a something we're thinking of uh, developing to make our products a little bit more accessible and a better price for people. Cod, do you like but, that? Um, Delicious. I just, yeah. just want to know where, where you got the idea tang. of the two, those two things. Mm. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm really proud of that one. It's our best awarded product. But it's, uh, I like to say it's a marmalade made for kings. It's a royal, royal combination. And, you know, you do... Uh, <laughs> but that's me getting carried away. It's a jam fusion marmalade as well. Jam fusion marmalade. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, it, it is a marmalade, though. It, you know, it, it's got the best of marmalade thing. That's... So this, right. the reason I pulled, I want, the reason I, I pulled this I up... I absolutely but, want Ollie to taste this. I probably won't, but I absolutely want you to taste that. What is it? That. People do love it. So I... That is something... So what it, what it is, is pickled wild garlic buds. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> they're, they're unopened wild garlic flowers, which are cold pickled to uh, keep the freshness. 
So I'm just going to carry on eating more we, marmalade. We've had a few sort of uh, at trade shows, Japanese uh, exporters. Um, I think there's, you know, because it's quite an interesting market. So um, we've we've been approached by a few people, and, and we're so all. Let's just have a little look. How do you these. eat? Apple. Oh, so these. Sue's now pouring all over the studio. <laughs> yes, I am. Essentially, it's something so, about your product. So yeah, essentially, these there. are tiny. Fingers in. Wow. They almost look like cap- with a bit of cheese, they almost look like caper berries actually. That, that, well, that's you know it's an unopened flower, so it's the same principle as a caper. But we we're always trying to encourage uh, you know when we speak to Japanese distributors and things, you know we use sour plums, we use these cold pickled wild garlics. So there's a couple of things which we tend to and can I can I get you to? But it's quite a hard sell to be honest. Pickled ferns, the wrong side of the world, basically. Yeah, you done pickled ferns? Okay, I've We've got, got a lot of, I've got white jeans on. Hang on, pickled pickled ferns, like so the fiddlehead, fiddlehead. Yes, exactly. Ferns. Yeah, fiddlehead. Yeah, mm. if you can do those, I, I, I want to get those on the menu. I'm always very curious about the pickled ferns. Can codge. It's not one we've experimented with much, but yeah, that's something I would have They're really been, fun. Yeah, you know, they'd be great for Japanese food, I, I think, potentially. You know, it's a cold, Are they strong? Garlicky, no. I don't know. Yeah. And they're really nice. Mm. They're really, um, mm. they're really delicious. That is delicious. Good in salads, good on cheese buds. So yeah, you know, so it just adds a nice, fresh, fresh. <clears throat> yeah, so, to, yeah, so you have to be quite sharp, but you've got maybe a week gap uh, when the flowers... When the when the flowers are up high enough to be easy to pick, and you pick them just before they open, and then we we have our method where we um yeah we cold pickle it to make sure it's nice and fresh and stays crunchy. Um, but yeah, they're great on salads, great on cheese boards. Um, but so yeah, I'm it's it's a really good now. really good ingredient. To, we we make things like we use them in salsa verde. Um, I've never even heard of these. No, no, they're right. In a salsa verde, they'd be great. Wild yeah. garlic buds. Oh, chimchurri, that's the other one. Oh, we chuck, chuck nice. a whole bowl in uh, chimchurri, but there's one of, one of the things that we've got a couple, you know, great just on cheese boards. So we haven't got many in the catering trade, but there's a couple of people on them. Wow, they're really interesting. So this is wild garlic. Um, so these, those beautiful wild garlic flowers, where you get the white flowers. This is the actual bud before the flower opens, before I'm guessing. Before it opens, yeah. Hmm. Nice, so, hmm. We've certainly certainly probably be limited by how many we can make of those. Sure. Uh, because there's only so many foot soldiers you can have out there yeah. picking wild garlic for a week of the year. It's, you know, it's, and then they're just pickled in in sort of vinegar or something. Yes. Yeah, so we tend stuff. to try and use cider vinegar, keep it mm. keep it authentic. We have a we have, you need those in your restaurant because nobody else will have them. Can't. Yeah. In the whole, it'd be so extraordinary. Nobody would have them. No, Except I'd love you. to. Mm. No, I can see why, why you put them yeah. in small jars because it takes <laughs> takes you a long time to pick that many. Yeah, <clears throat> get one per jar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We uh, we'll, we've we've got a, not a bad rate at catering price, but um, yeah, we've actually been foraging down towards Worcestershire. So yeah, yeah, you know, we've sort of started to explore. Our, you know, we started out picking these old orchards around Cheshire, but it's the same. It's the same principle all around the country that. These well, small-scale orchards used to supply cities and populations up to the 1950s. You know, fruit was supplied locally, and then food systems changed. So, because basically food trees last about 60 to 70 years, we're seeing like where they haven't been grubbed up. We're seeing like the last remnants of these old orchards that used to supply the population. So, places like Worcestershire, not too far away, where we picked. I mean, they're incredible. That's the traditional plum-growing region of Britain. 
So it's because of the clay soil and all up the west of Britain, they like the a bit of wind and a bit of rain. So that's why we're blessed with plenty of the prunus species. So we got most of our slows down in Worcestershire there this year. All up the west of the country, there's damsons. So, um, yeah, I mean, <coughs> we started out picking lots of little orchards and now we go to these old orchards around the, the Vale of Evesham, which is the traditional plum-grown region in Britain. And there's these old plum varieties, which a lot of our modern varieties stem from, like the purple Persia plum. And then we're trying to restore these old orchards, working with farmers who, you know, this particular one, which is a beautiful old orchard on the top of a hill, he's a dairy farmer. And he has probably a huge, huge field, maybe 10 acres. And the one acre on the top of the hill is this beautiful old orchard with maybe 50 trees in, which are all starting to fall over. But, you know, the farmers kept it just because it's part of the heritage of the area. He could have grubbed it up and got more land for the big field that he rents, but he's left And, and you're helping them then to, to bring out the natural fruit yeah. and, and restore them. Exactly. You know, these you know farmers, they probably don't get a lot of credit, but they, they do, they try and preserve the character and the, mm. you know, the landscape uh, as much as they can. Um, but we basically, unless things don't get used, they get lost. They get so lost, exactly. we try and put it to use, encourage them to help we basically go to these dams and hedgerows and there's tons of dams and hedgerows, yeah, especially, so we went down to Worcestershire this year in winter. We dug up about 300 or 400 fruit trees and we got basically, went, we, right next to this orchard is a dams and hedgerow that actually didn't have many damsons in because it's an ancient hedgerow full of damsons. It's, and these more true wild plums, they sucker from the roots. So you get hundreds of young trees just growing up from the roots. So we just dig up the suckers and then we also went to the orchard. We spent an afternoon in the orchard. Um, and then we did sorry, we did the morning in the orchard. And then we got the purple Persia plums, which because they're more like a wild plum, like a damson's quite wild. They also have hundreds of these suckers. So we basically dug up about 300, 400 suckers. It's pretty hard work. <laughs> uh, well, it was it was enough. It was too. It was it was an afternoon and a, and a morning after sitting in on the uh, on the M6 in traffic, uh, which we're always doing, trying <laughs> yeah. to get down to uh, pick our plums. But um, yeah, so we 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 distribute them with farmers. There's a great farmer that we're working in in Shropshire who's had about 100 trees off us this year. One for a heritage orchard and uh, one for his hedgerows. So damsons used to be known as a Shropshire prune, so that's a very traditional damson farming area. And it's just fascinating when we talk to these old farmers, they basically tell us stories of like when their grandfathers used to literally pick a couple of tons from the hedgerow of damsons. Wow, well, yeah. Which for us is just inspiring. And, you know, it's the last sort of memory that people have. This particular farmer uh, in Shropshire, um, he basically said... You know, he had he had a couple in his hedges. He said, "I've just planted these to try and, you know, because I don't want to see the damsons lost from the hedgerows." Exactly. And we came along. He's a great guy, Mike Griffiths, and um, yeah, we we um, just restoring it. Paul Griffiths. Yeah. So you're just <laughs> so, restoring it. So we yeah, we've given him a hundred, and he's he's really like a steward. He's gonna he's taken seventy damsons and plums. They're going in his hedgerows. He's taken. I think my brother gave him about twenty he's heritage, really heritage look after apple. It. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So that's, you know, it's really great to get involved. And then also um, charities and things. And then the other thing for me is, is trying to get children to do this stuff because children naturally <coughs> like doing these things, they love don't it. they? They love it. Uh, you know, it feels like you, you discover a little, I don't know, a little prize or, a, or you know, a hidden little secret when, when kids can actually understand and, and, and pick some of these things. We, they we, love would, it, don't we were driving between Tufnell Park in, and the Holloway Road in the middle of London and we saw a whole lot of wild garlic growing on the edge of a, uh, of, a, of a mansion block. 
and um, we just we took a whole load home. The kids yeah. were so excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They love it. And, and, and then every time we drive past, they're like, that's where the wild garlic comes from. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, you yeah, have yeah. to wait till you know, Well, now April, you can pick year. all the flowers. I never yeah, even, exactly. Oh, the buds. I never even thought of they that. Well, two small children's labour. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, Fred, if anybody wants to um, do any of your uh, foraging courses, because actually they obviously you're very, very knowledgeable, you guys. Mm. They can learn so much, can't they? Um, they? They can learn. I'm going to be probably the worst salesman possible here that we're probably uh i mean we don't have any on offer at the minute we're, right. we're so we're based in um in Macclesfield. we used to do them on a community garden it's an incredible amount of work but we really put on a great show for people and do like a three-course meal match of wild wine and, and we do a nice walk but um you know we found You're and then to su- your, you... supper clubs are, were also excellent we had a relationship with a chef uh which we still do um, and we did them for two years. We did them in a local pub. We did a six-course tasting menu. Um, it's great. We did, you know, a couple of sort of ramens. I don't know whether that's strictly, but yeah, we we ex- the chef was brilliant. It was brilliant, you know, being able to experiment, truly experiment with wild food. So, are you not doing these foraging courses anymore? We did it for two years. Uh, the pop-ups in yep. a, in, a, in a pub, and that was, you know, at the end of the day, it's supposed to be a pop-up. Yeah. We literally got planning permission for our building last week. Um, We probably didn't help ourselves uh, uh, before Christmas, not last Christmas, the Christmas before, when we first got set up in the building. And uh, we really needed our best-selling chutney, which has just run out because we haven't been able to make it. Uh, Hogweed curry chutney. Um, hog, yeah, hogweed is a, is one of the best uh, wild ingredients you can use. It's a great spice. It's also a great vegetable. It's in the celery family. You do have to learn a little bit about that family, the umbellifers, um, and the celery and carrot family, but it's full of these really interesting herbs that you can eat and lots of wild edible vegetables. Um, so, so, so I'm, I'm going to rather hog, cut across you hog, here. Yeah. But, but so, so we so, can't we can't use your amazing knowledge yeah, at the moment. Bit, I'm going a bit off track with yeah, that. But so, basically, so, so, we stank out Macclesfield Town Centre with right. our hogweed curry chutney. Right. Uh, and because of that, you know, you, once you step on the toes of the environmental agency and you get a few complaints, you, uh, you they are quite um, hesitant about. But we're getting it. We've got an extractor fan, so we're not going to be stinking out Macclesfield Town Centre anymore. It's now going somewhere different. We've got our production facility and we've got carbon filters, which are all going to be fitted. So basically, um, yeah, this whole planning permission has has held back our, our, our wild food supper clubs. Um, but now we have a building with planning permission. There's potential for us to, we would love to have our own well I'm, our own I, I think probably the best thing is um, I mean these are a lot of work though yes. by, so, by a jar I, I think we probably the best things. thing is Fred is <laughs> obviously trying to make gin as well remember Fred is slightly all over the place I would suggest <laughs> with so many ideas we're trying is, to focus which is very exciting mm. focusing might 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 um, yes be recommended however I would go to Fruits of the Forage website Keep in touch with what you yeah, guys are exactly. doing uh, because it is extraordinary. We're we're an, ex- I'm, I'm we're an experiment. Be, I'm going to yes. I'm going to be really upset if you don't keep it, keep making that slow marmalade. Or, or you better buy well, a lot of it now. Or buy uh, a lot of it now because there might not be any more. Since this comes into a conversation, the damn slow jam. Yes. Because of the fault of the slow marmalade being such a fantastic product, has shoved this out because we cannot keep up with our slow, slower uh, consumption. Right. Uh, so we would have to. We would probably have to spend half of our time picking slows if we. Yes. Basically, it used too many. So dam slow jam, which we also have here, was the first jam I made. You know, basically dams have a lovely tart, 
rich flavor. And when you combine it with slows, which is the sour wild plum, it's, it's incredible. But damn slow jam. So. We, can't, we can't pick enough slows, so we've not that on the head. Great. So, um, <laughs> if you got the, you want some work experience, really just give him a say, call. Really. He, so, yeah. all I would say is, uh, we so, need you. So we need you. Fru- Fruits of the Forage, just go on their website because I can't even explain what they do anymore. <laughs> no, there's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. But, However, but, 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 so we see this a lot, think, don't we, in, in, the, in the food industry, which is actually, you know, <laughs> actually people explore a lot. Yeah. And they, yeah. Find, they do explore find a lot. The product. Yes. I think what they call it in the tech world is they pivot. Yeah, well, they pivot from one thing to the do, next, depending M- on multiple. how successful things are. Absolutely. However, what you need to do before you do anything else is supply these um, these sort of garlic, what are they called? Buds. Garlic buds. Mm. You need to supply those to Codge because you can earn some money then, can't you, Codge? And then I can pay yeah, for yeah, yeah, yeah. some of you picking out of your building. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know what to say, Ollie. It's been do great. you want to it's been add great. anything I mean, to that? I, th- I think I think you need to try the, the Seville jam. I mean, it's it's really amazing. yes. Well, um, Fred, I wish uh, you guys um, all the luck in the world. <laughs> Please keep in contact with us for your next adventure. I'm sure, we'd like yeah, to know. We will. We will. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, don't forget, of course, um, Andrew Kojima or Kodge Restaurant down in Cheltenham. Thank you very much. And are you going to finish your book? Which, yeah, which is um, is tentatively titled "No Sushi, Please." I'm Japanese. That's right. Um, we've done all the photography. Uh, I've still got some some more uh, bits and pieces to chip in, some recipes, some more essays on various different things of Japanese. So you've still got a bit of work to do. Yeah, is that going to be the title? <laughs> work. Not do. sure. Un- the unfinished. Uh, yeah. The unfinished uh, yeah. cookbook. Yeah. Mm. I'm cooking. I'm actually cooking at a sushi restaurant tonight, which is. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. That'll be good. That'll be good. So, if you want to for- find out more about um, Codge, obviously there'll be lots of links on our website, um, as there would about fruits of the forage. Do you want to add anything, Ollie? No, but I think I'm going to try doing <laughs> the fruits all, of the forest. Fruits of the forest. Yeah. Um, First gin of all, cocktail. I have got fruits I have of got the forage. Very fruits of the forage. Fruits Don't of get it wrong. No. I've got I've got a very very red jam over my yeah. white jeans. Don't worry, I was a personal brand manager. I can Apart from advice. being all the best parties sprayed get sprayed by cordial when you first arrived. Yeah. Uh, afraid I've, I've dried off now. Have you? Yeah, I'm, I am. Yeah. Uh, so thank Again, you. Again, the sun. All the electrical implements are working. I hope. Yeah. yeah, they are. Thank you for bringing that in, Fred. That's very kind of you. Pleasure. Um, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Food Talk Show, uh, which is syndicated to radio stations across the UK and further afield, as well as being available on. Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes and the podcast app on your phone. I'm not quite sure what to say about this programme, but thank you so much uh, for joining me, Ollie Lloyd. It's been, it's been memorable. Founder <laughs> of great British chefs. It's a bit nonplussed. If you want to recommend any future guests, hopefully not quite like Fred, but, but maybe, um, please do get in touch with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show, or if you want to listen to any of our 100 podcasts, go to foodtalk.co. UK. Thank you once again to my guests, um, Fred and Cod. Thank you so much. And um, I hope you all have a good week. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.